Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Actus Podcast, a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. I'm Linnea Archibald, the Associate Editorial Director for Actus. I'm excited to be here with you today during our Actus Conference Week. We have a very special show lined up, and I'm going to be joined by the whole Actus editorial team very shortly, including Director of Programming Rebecca Hendren, Editor and Product Coordinator Carla Accordo, Associate Editor Jess Flugel, and our newest Associate Editor Joshua Raposa. Today's show will provide a glimpse behind the scenes of all things Actus in a more casual, conversational format than our other podcast series, and will also feature an interview with an Actus member involved with the association. Today, we're going to discuss Vident Health's seven-year battle with the OIG over malnutrition denials. I am joined by Vaughn Matical, MD, CCDS, Director of the Physician Advisor Group at ECU Health, which was formerly Vident Health in Greenville, North Carolina, who just presented with his colleagues on this very topic yesterday at the Actus National Conference in Chicago. Dr. Matical began a physician advisor role in 2007, and in 2013, he took a full-time role as a physician advisor. Serving as the director of the advisor team, it has grown to eight full-time physicians and a PA who conduct post-discharge pre-bill reviews and provide support and education for coding, CDI, and medical staff throughout the health system, as well as full UR support. In addition, he has more than 18 years of experience in UR work and continues to practice hospital medicine. Currently, he chairs the Patient Safety Indicator Committee, and he holds a position on the Hospital Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Committee. Vaughn has spoken at multiple Actus and industry conferences, and he currently sits on our Actus Advisory Board. Welcome to the show, Vaughn. Before we jump into our conversation, just a quick reminder that the Actus podcast now offers 0.5 Actus CEUs for the first two days after airing, which can be used towards your CCDS or CCDSO recertification requirements. We'll share the instructions at the end of the show as usual, so do stay tuned for that. Well, thanks for joining me today, Vaughn. Seven years is obviously a very long time to be fighting a battle. And I know that you've spoken about malnutrition denials and your particular experience at our conferences in the past, but would you mind starting just by giving our listeners a little bit of an overview of how this whole battle began? Sure. Yeah. We were early adopters, I guess you would you would call it, for the Andy and Aspen criteria. And we uh, started Implementing them, our dietitians really were nationally active at the time. And so in 2013, so the year after they were published, our dietitians really started applying the A&D Aspen criteria, developing some competency programs and doing some internal uh, studies with our uh, surgical patients to see uh, how well these criteria were going to work and what it reflected in our patient population. So they noticed during that process that we were not having documentation and coding to match what they were seeing clinically. And so that's when the partnership began between uh, our dietitians, our CDI, our physician advisors, uh, and we really started to raise awareness and work on standardized documentation so that we could uh, identify, document, code, and transition those diagnoses out to the outpatient 
uh, follow-up providers. So, so we really wanted to have that communi clinical communication uh, continue on past those acute care stays. That got us on the radar of the OIG. Uh, we certainly were not the highest in terms of capture rates for malnutrition or severe malnutrition, but uh, the size of our institution meant that we had a very high uh, absolute number of captures of severe malnutrition. So that got us noticed and the OIG sent us a letter in uh, 2015 and let us know that they were coming to visit and wanted to uh, look at our records for severe malnutrition. And so that's how it all began when we uh, got our results. So they subcontracted the clinical reviews to um, uh, a medical review company. Uh, when we got those results with an 87% error rate, which was completely out of context with what we had seen with all of our other reviews on that single diagnosis in the past. Uh, we read the review rationales and saw the error rate, and I think that's when we knew that the battle was on. Uh, we really uh, knew that that was not right, and uh, we didn't know it was going to be such a long road, but that's kind of where it all started. That's an insane error rate. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. just crazy. <laughs> Yeah. About that. <laughs> there were two other institutions that they did this the similar uh, process with and they had similarly high error rates for the you know the single diagnosis of severe malnutrition so uh, they found it in all three institutions i'm not sure if they used the same subcontracting auditor or not but i think that they did that's wild i know so even though obviously documentation proper documentation leads to things like accurate reimbursement, quality scores, risk adjustment, all the things. Really the heart of the matter is that accurate documentation is good for patient care. And I know that nutritional status has such a massive effect on patient care and patient outcomes. So could you share a little bit of the specifics around malnutrition's impact for patients and why it's so important to capture that accurately? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, the CMS quality uh, arm has published in some final rules and some proposed quality measures surrounding malnutrition. Uh, they, they have really uh, almost emphasized malnutrition as an important clinical topic. Joint Commission has joined in with them as well, and they've affirmed some of the facts on malnutrition. So in terms of the clinical importance and impact, and so the facts on malnutrition, uh, pressure ulcers two times more likely when malnutrition is present. Uh, length of stay for inpatient is two days longer, uh, three times the risk for surgical site infections. Uh, and then the wonderful thing is that when you identify and intervene on malnutrition, provide nutritional support, you see a reversal of all of those uh, adverse events and outcomes. Uh, and so this has been described in a number of different studies. We did an internal study on some of our surgical patients, and we found that uh, we had a significantly higher cost of stay, significantly higher length of stay. And while not statistically significant, we saw trends toward increased mortality and complications. So um, both uh, in national uh, studies and publications, as well as our own internal studies, we knew that this was extremely important for our patients. So really this was, uh, the genesis was clinical initiative to impact outcomes and to make things better for our patients. So, um, and that's, you know, back in 2013 when we started all that work. 
Yeah, it really is. It makes such a big difference. And I guess that's probably why malnutrition is such a focus both for CDI and for the OIG, unfortunately. Um, but it's you can't ignore it. You don't want to be under-documenting that. That's a very important thing to get right. No, no. The documentation is extremely important for communication, clinical communication. Uh, we do, you know, we see these acute episodes of care on the inpatient side, but when the patient is discharged, you know, we really need to make sure that the, the diagnoses that are appropriate and need to be followed up on are in that medical record, clearly communicated. Uh, they need to be in the discharge summaries, the progress notes, the HPs, all of those things that uh, outpatient providers doing the long-term care are going to see. So, uh, it really is helpful for that clinical communication and ensure that treatment plans continue. You know, you already talked about the length of stay and uh, risk adjustment and finance and all that stuff. And that's important as well. Um, but when we do a great job clinically, you know, we can, all the rest of that stuff comes later, um, just naturally. Absolutely. So let's zoom back in on uh, that massive error rate for a second. What were the most common rationale that the OIG gave you for those for denying all those claims? I know that your presentation talks about kind of several categories, but could you share maybe some of the most frequent ones and how you went about fighting those? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'd say the two main categories, one was reportability. So we saw these uh, wasn't treated enough or uh, wasn't addressed in any significant way. Um, and those were the rationales. Now, that is not what was consistent with the record. Uh, the record did show that it met reportability criteria. Um, and the other was clinical validation. So it wasn't present or it just was it was there but wasn't severe. So those were the two main issues. Uh, and we really went back to basics for those. We applied uh, A&D Aspen criteria for that population that we used it. Um, one interesting thing about our study time period was that it spanned the implementation of the AMD Aspen criteria as our standard. So we had to go back and look at the classic approach as well as the AMD Aspen. But we had to be very strict about how we argued the cases. And uh, when it was a classic approach, we had to stick with that. And when it was an AMD Aspen, we uh, had to stick with that. We were very, uh, I guess, kind of pure about what clinical factors we uh, we were applying uh, as a standard. Uh, and then um, we went back to guidelines. Uh, we had some very good uh, feedback from uh, Nellie Leon Chisson, director of the AHA Coding Clinic, that helped cement that our understanding and application of coding guidelines uh, and coding clinic was correct. So uh, we use those things in many of our arguments and as our foundation for our arguments. So. Uh, that's how we approached it through uh, the majority of our appeals levels, uh, and especially at the uh, ALJ. That's great, and a massive amount of work. Um, <laughs> so yeah, at, it, it at least it's over. <laughs> <laughs> at least it's over. That's correct. Um, so I know you kind of alluded to this, but I also know from looking at your presentation that your team chose to make case-by-case -case arguments instead of addressing kind of all of the cases as at once as a whole. Why did you choose to go that route? And do you think that it proved more effective than maybe the alternative would have? Yeah, I, I think so. I think at every level of 
of appeal, you have to assume that um, you will not win. Um, and it helps you plan ahead for the next level of appeal. I think our first appeals, we appealed the specific rationales that were delivered to us. And on the um, next level, we found that there were new rationales or other rationales or other reasons for the denial. And so we kind of learned that we need to be more comprehensive and plan ahead. So in our second level, we uh, included all of the reportability criteria and all of the clinical criteria with references, knowing that we needed to be very comprehensive about that. We took the same approach with the ALJ and we actually used our second level appeals to help us organize that. So we tried to, um, I guess, uh, have a very uh, standardized approach for our ALJ. The reason why we chose to do individual cases is because each case is different. Uh, and when you have such a high volume and we appealed 77, so you know our um, error rate was higher than that, but we only chose to do 77. And if we thought we were wrong with any of those cases or it was a gray area, we chose not to appeal. We wanted to make sure that we were appealing only those that we felt very confident about in terms of clinical and coding. Um, and there was really no gray area. So um, back to the question about why we did each individual, we were thinking ahead to wh whether we were going to have to go to the CMS appeals or federal court. And uh, it was very important to go through each and every case rationale on the record and talk about the clinical aspects and the coding aspects of each one. And so we chose to do that. And, you know, there are risks with looking for summary judgments, you know, where um, you may have a mixed bag where some of your cases are strong and some may not be. And so that could pose some challenges as well. I think it worked out well for us, as you heard yesterday. And, uh, you know, we, we were ready in case we had to go to federal court, but thankfully uh, that wasn't required. So so that's how we approached it uh, from, you know, way back when through our levels of appeals all the way to the ALJ and why we did the, the case by case. Yeah, that's great. I think it is that kind of summary judgment can be really complicated, but it's also a lot of work to do each case individually. Um, and that's definitely something that came through in your presentation and just from talking to you over the last year, several years <laughs> yeah. about this topic. Um, now, obviously, and you have very good experience with this, you can do everything right, and these denials will still come in, as you have made very evident. But having that documentation kind of shored up in the first place will certainly help build your case later. So what guidelines or recommendations would you offer to those who are looking to ensure that their malnutrition documentation is really as solid as it possibly can be? Yeah, I think th that's kind of a multi-step um, approach. I think you have to start at, um, before the patients even arrive, you have to have a set of clinical standards. You need to apply those uniformly. You need to educate uh, your uh, clinical staff, those folks documenting and making diagnoses. Uh, you need to educate them on the clinical standards. Uh, you need to get their buy-in, and it's really a partnership. Everyone needs to be on the same page for things like severe malnutrition. There are many other things, AKI and other uh, targets of denials. And so uh, starting off on the right foot with a um, multi-pronged approach with multidisciplinary team and making sure that everyone is in agreement as you move forward. 
you know, as you get to the area where you're um, an inpatient and you're admitted to the hospital, you really need to make sure that your documentation is standardized. You need to have uh, uniform terminology. Uh, you need your dietitians on board and you need to make sure that the documentation uh, has not only the details of the diagnosis, but also the clinical criteria that support that diagnosis. And then uh, what you're doing about that. Why is it important? And what are the interventions uh, that you're applying? So you don't just focus on getting it documented once and then, you know, one uh, reportability criteria in the orders section. You really want that to be a very comprehensive and consistent documentation from front to back. And then your coders need to be aware that when they see something missing from what you've all agreed upon, that they know to escalate that for clinical validation. And certainly we do double check a lot of our diagnoses to make sure that we have everything uh, that is needed um, in the documentation and clinical support uh, when we report those uh, diagnosis codes. Yeah, that multi-pronged, multidisciplinary process is so important, I think, for the whole thing, whether you're fighting back against the denials on the back end or you're just trying to ensure that the documentation is solid on the front end. It, it, it's, a, it's a team sport. <laughs> it definitely is. And um, it's slow. It's, uh, it takes a while to get everybody on board. And so, you know, when we were adopting the ND Aspen criteria, you know, we started with our dietitians. They were our, I guess, clinical leaders in terms of uh, adopting those uh, published guidelines. And uh, the rest of us, you know, kind of came on board and started to really get the team together. And so it, it takes a while. It's a very slow pathway, but I think it's um, a very sound pathway for uh, long-term progress and, and really to get, make sure you get everything right and you're compliant. Absolutely. So as we kind of close out here, um, seven years is a really long time. And I can tell from some of the photos that you included in your presentation that this was a very exhausting process. And I'm sure that you are all very glad to have it done and behind you. So in my very serious questions for you are one, how did you celebrate? And what are you planning to do with your newly found free time now that you are not fighting a giant battle with the OIG? <laughs> there's, a, there's always a new thing to, to work on, but how did we celebrate? I think the last day of hearings, uh, we did put a picture up there of some giant steaks and some uh, interesting beverages, and uh, it was exhausting. That was uh, six days uh, in the hearings, and we were exhausted. Uh, we were tired. It's very intense, and you have to be kind of on your game and focused for the entire day. We went out for this huge meal, and we just kind of sat there, and nothing was kind of off the menu, and we just kind of blew off steam, and that was really fun. When we got our results back, so when we got the ALJ determination back, um, it took me a while to warm up. I, I was almost in disbelief for a short bit. And then I got worried that, oh, well, there's still this uh, appeals window. And so I got nervous. Uh, and then um, everyone else was really excited. And I'm like, you know, they're right. And so finally, uh, I came around and we had kind of a, an intimate gathering. It was an entire evening where we brought our families and we all got together 
and just kind of celebrated uh, that we had made it that far and we got this fully favorable uh, ruling. So I don't know what we'll do next. Uh, we'll see. There's always um, a new frontier. So <laughs> there's never a shortage of work. I'm not, I'm not looking for another battle. Um, I'll tell you that. I was going to say, you don't want to jump into like sepsis or something next. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> no, I'd like to take a little break from, uh, from any more battles. I don't blame you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Vaughn. This has been really fun uh, and helpful. And unfortunately, we have run out of time. But as always, if our audience has questions about the topic or about anything else, you can email the Actus team at info at actus.org. I'll also put that email address in today's show notes, which are available on the show page at actus.org and in your podcast app of choice so that you can grab it right from there. Also, for those of you who were not able to attend the Actus National Conference this week and hear Vaughn and his colleagues present, there's a whole bunch of folks on this team present at the conference this week. Actus members will have access to the PowerPoints from all of the sessions within the next few weeks. So just stay tuned to the CDI Strategies newsletter for updates on that, and you will be able to check out the rest of this great presentation. Now it's time for the Actus Update, a regular segment featuring the latest news on what's going on inside our association. As I mentioned at the very beginning of today's show, I am joined by all of my editorial colleagues today, which is very exciting that I don't have to just be here by myself. Joining me today um, are Rebecca Hendren, Carla Accordo, Jess Flugel, and Joshua Raposa. And this is our very special edition of the Actus Update. Our first order of business today is to introduce our listeners to our newest Actus team member, Joshua, who joined our team last month as the associate editor. Joshua wrote a very writerly introductory note in CDI Strategies a couple of weeks ago in the form of a poem, so definitely go check that out if you haven't seen it already. But we did want to give him a minute to introduce himself here on the podcast as well. So Joshua, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what you've been up to in your first, your very first month at Actus? Thanks, Linnea. Thank you for having me here. And hello, team. Uh, my name's Joshua. Uh, I'm hail from Newburyport, Massachusetts. Uh, I went to UMass Amherst. And before joining Actus, uh, I had a job at a Journal of Nuclear Security. In my free time, just a little bit about me, I like to read. I like to write. Uh, I play guitar and I act, and I have a cat named Desmond, who is a total complete menace. At Actus, I've served as an associate editor. So, so far, I've done podcast updates, news updates, announcements, currently working on a Meta member profile, learning the ropes of CDIs, and I'm also known for the occasional poetic limerick. And what a limerick it was. I, I think that may be our first published limerick on CDI. <laughs> and all I can say is I hope it won't be our last. Me too. <laughs> we are so glad you joined our team, Joshua, and we look forward to our audience getting to know you better. They will certainly be reading a lot of content that you write over the next few months. Um, so everybody keep an eye keep an eye out for Joshua's name and now you know who he is. And most importantly, um, 
he fulfilled the actor's criteria of being a pet lover because we do love to talk about our pets and actors. So we're glad to have you, Joshua, but we're really glad to have Desmond the cat as well. So I wanted to, um, before we wrap up our actors update today, talk about the fact that we are all at the conference um, as you listen to this episode. Um, so we are very excited to get to hear Vaughn, today's guest in person, and members of the Vident team talk about their long battle with the OIG. It's hard to believe um, that the 2023 Actors Conference is here and almost gone because we're already in the midst of planning the 2024 Actors Conference, which I'm excited to let you all know is going to be a month earlier than usual in 2024. It's going to be April 8th through the 11th, 2024 in Indianapolis. So that will be a really fun city for us all to get to know. We are opening the call for speakers a little earlier than usual this year, just because the conference will be happening a month earlier. So the call for speakers is now happening. If you have an interesting program, something exciting that you want to share with your peers around the country, please do put in for a session and we would love to see what you want to share with everybody. You can find the information to submit a proposal for the call for speakers on the Actors website. Look for the conference pages and you will find the link. So keep an eye on that. We're very excited about it. Um, but speaking of the conference, um, I would love for Carla to talk to us a little bit about the award winners, which is one of my absolute favorite parts of the conference, because I love hearing about the amazing work that's going on around the country and the truly special people who are setting an example for all of us. Carla, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. As always, the award ceremony was a true highlight of the conference for all of us. And uh, I do just want to briefly take a moment to acknowledge all of the recipients of the 2023 Actus Achievement Awards. The inaugural Melissa Varnavis Spirit of Service Award was presented to Chris Gumayege, who is the CDI manager at NYU Langone Health System. We also presented the Rookie of the Year Award to Patty Robles, Clinical Documentation Specialist at Advocate Aurora Health in Illinois. This year's Excellence in Provider Engagement Award was presented to Melissa Browley, Certified Clinical Documentation Specialist at Atrium Wake Forest Baptist in North Carolina. The Recognition of CDI Professional Achievement Award this year was given to Tierra L. Minor, who's the Senior Manager of CDI at the University of Miami Health System in Florida. The CDI Professional of the Year Award, our top honor, was presented to Lori Gannot, Director of Inpatient CDI at Baptist Health Systems of Kentucky and Southern Indiana. And lastly, we also presented the 2023 Diversity in CDI Award to Wellstar Health System, which is based in Georgia. If you know any of our award recipients this year, we definitely recommend that you reach out and congratulate them. Their accomplishments are truly commendable, and we're really excited to have this opportunity to recognize them on the big stage for all of their efforts and their contributions to the profession. If you want to learn more about this year's award recipients too, I definitely encourage you to check out the May 11th edition of CDI Strategies, where we'll give you a little more background information about all of these folks and why they were nominated and ultimately why the committee selected them as the recipients. And 
like Rebecca said, we're all at the conference now, but for those of you that are at home listening and you're looking for some more reading, we're happy to say that the May and June CDI journal has just published. Jess, can you talk a little bit more about what readers can expect to find in this edition? Yes, definitely can. And also, I just wanted to just give a big thank you to everybody who reached out with interest um, about writing a CDI journal article for us for this edition. We had just so many people willing to participate and to share their uh, experiences and advice and so many great writers, honestly. So I wanted to thank everyone who contributed. We had some really good articles just from CDI members like like you. Uh, and this past uh, journal that we just came out with, the CDI management tools had all sorts of information on like how to work with CDI when you have a, a budget. Um, and the one of the people I spoke with, she had lots of great advice like on how to budget like a rock star, as she put it, that was really applicable, I think, to any CDI program that you guys, uh, regardless of what your current budgeting is, is looks like, it, it's a great, there's lots of great applications, I think, in that one, um, as well as our CDI project, the feature that I worked on um, article with a few different uh, interviewees that gave a lot of great advice on how you can uh, structure uh, a project that you're doing for your CDI program. And that was just one of many that you guys can enjoy in our in our new edition that just came out. So yeah, if you're looking for a opportunity to work on your CEUs, just a reminder that reading the journal and taking the associated quiz with it uh, does give you one CEU per journal edition. So take a look at past editions if you'd like, um, but also the one for, for May, June has just been released. So you can go ahead and, and read through that and get credit for it, which is really great. Um, but yeah, and again, one more thank you again to everyone who uh, submitted for this journal. And if you would like to get something in for our future editions, definitely take a look on our website for for what's in store in the future. And we'd love to to see something that you've written published as well. Absolutely. And I'll just, I'll echo what you just said, Jess, about um, being thankful for how many people submitted articles. We've really been extremely grateful to the members this year. We've received a lot more submissions than we have in the past, and we would love to see that continue. The journal is really, yes, we work on a few articles ourselves, but we really want it to be a resource created and shaped by our members. So the more contributors that we can feature in an edition, the better, in my opinion. And um, I know this this edition also includes more submissions on mortality reviews. I think we still have a couple left over. Uh, we requested those for the March-April edition of the journal, and you all really turned out with those submissions. So if you are in the market for, for some mortality review material, definitely check out the edition as well, because we have a lot of, um, of great advice in there. I also worked on an article on system-wide CDI management and had a really good time talking to some of our leadership council members about that. Uh, and I think it'll be helpful for anybody who's dealing with kind of a corporate CDI structure. Honestly, even if you're not in a management role, just knowing how to interact as a broader team is, is really valuable. So 
lots to lots to look at there. It's always a labor of love. We're excited to that it's now in your hands digitally speaking. We're already hard at work on the July August edition, which will be focused on education and engagement. We're very excited about that as well. For now, anything we talked about today, I will put a link in the show notes so you can go and click on it and read more. Like Carla said, we'll have all the information about our award winners in tomorrow's CDI Strategies newsletter. So do take a look at that as well. You can subscribe to that for free if you are not already on that list. Rebecca mentioned the 2024 conference. We'll also have information about the speaker call opening up very soon, if not already. So definitely be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, And until next time, we hope you are all either having fun with us in Chicago or having fun and staying informed at home. We hope to see you in 2024. As always, if you have any questions, reach out to us at info at As a reminder, before we close out, each Actus podcast episode now offers 0.5 Actus CEUs, which can be used towards recertifying your CCDS or your CCDSO credential for those who listen to the show in the first two days from the time of publication. To receive your 0.5 CEUs, go to the show page on actus.org by clicking on the Actus podcast link under the resources tab, and then clicking on today's episode from the list on that page just below the show description. Then follow the instructions in the show notes for today's episode. Your certificate will be automatically emailed to you upon submitting the brief evaluation. The cutoff for today's episode CEU is Friday, May 12th at 11 p.m. Eastern. After that point, the CEU period will close and you will not be eligible for the 0.5 CEUs for this week's episode anymore. If you were to listen to all of the episodes in 2023, including today's episode, and claim all of the CEUs for our podcast episodes this year, you will have earned 13 free CEUs for the year. With that, we have reached the end of today's Actus podcast episode. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, May 24th for our next show, which will be part of our Leadership with Linnea series. It will be a great follow-up conversation for today's show as we will uh, hopefully be discussing clinical validation, denials, and appeals. If you would like to receive reminders about each episode, make sure you're subscribed to our free weekly newsletter, CDI Strategies, which always includes a link to the new episode when it is available. You can listen to the show anytime on the Actus website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. All the links we discussed during today's episode will be available in the show notes for today. And as always, we'd really appreciate it if you would take just a minute to leave us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice, because that really helps others find our show. Our intro and outro music is Media Noche by Dion Key, and our ad music is Take Me Higher by Jazzar, both obtained from the Free Music Archive. And if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, please do email us at info at We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, take care, everyone.